sometimes things get messy and there's nothing really you can do about that. For example, if you've got the kids or the grandkids around and they ask to do some painting, you know there's going to be a significant amount of clearing up to do. Or, thinking of a more grown-up example, maybe there's some building work that needs to be done in your home, an extension or a renovation of a particular room. Really, there's no way of getting around the dust, the dirt, the chaos that is created as you work to achieve something. And as we make our way through the Book of Acts, as we continue to, to look back on the stories of the, the earliest Christian churches, people following Jesus for the first time in, in great numbers across the then known world, we see something similar. We see something being created but something that is messy at the same time. If I was to summarise the general thought, it would be this. When we as Jesus' followers are on mission, when we're sharing Jesus with those who don't yet know him, when we're welcoming new people into the family of Christ, things will get messy. No mess tends to indicate that nothing is happening. If your house is pristine and clean, well then, I know there's no building work going on. I know that there are no grandkids doing crafts. No, when there's mess in the church, that's usually a good sign that the church is on mission. Well, we're in Acts chapter 15 this morning as we're carrying on. We've had the first couple of stories of Barnabas and Saul, now referred to as Paul, really taking the gospel message, the good news that you can be saved, that you can know God, that you can be remade just by faith in Jesus. Taking that message out of the synagogues, out of the, the Jews who had believed in the first place and now sharing it freely with the Gentiles, with those folks who had no sense or relationship with God. They've carried out their first mission trip. Um, they've been sailing around and traveling. And as John told us, they horseshoed back again and, and celebrated the fact that churches <clears throat> had been planted, that people had come to faith. But in chapter 15, we realize, actually, this made a bit of a messy situation. This made it difficult for the church at large. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and... Um, elders about this question. The church sent them on their way and as they travelled through Phoenicia and Samaria they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad and when they came to Jerusalem they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know 
that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. This whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. And when they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. It is my judgment, continued James, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from polluted uh, food, offered to idols from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So then, the apostles and elders, with the whole church there in Jerusalem, decided to choose some of their own men and send them back to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, two men who were leaders among the brothers. And with them, they sent this following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria and Sicilia, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It's in good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. The men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. And after spending time there, they were sent off by the brothers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. You can see that having people from different places, different cultures, different backgrounds, 
different sort of starting points in their thought processes about life and identity, and especially about faith and salvation, was causing a mess. Some folks were so deeply rooted in their Jewish beliefs, in their Jewish customs, in their you know, pre-existing ideas of what it means to know God and to be known by God, that even though they'd come to trust in Jesus, they weren't sure how to sort those cultural things out in their minds. And of course, you had the other church, you had the Gentile churches, amongst whom really there was no sense, there was no um, pre-existing idea that they might adopt the customs of the Jews, the laws of Moses. And in fact, probably they had their own customs, their own religious things, their own things which gave them a sense of national identity even, which they continued with, happily, not really considering how it affected other believers or how other people might view it. And you can see that bringing people together from all these different directions were bound to cause mess. And so it has continued to be true in the church. Not necessarily along these lines, but always as folks of different educational backgrounds, or folks of different political persuasions, folks from different races, people of different languages have been brought together. It has caused mess. And yet somehow it's God's wonderful plan that a diverse group of people would come together. And in bringing people together who are so very different under Jesus, we would be displaying his goodness, his kindness, even his wisdom. Although very often it will seem madness to us to bring them together. Do you remember last year we spent some time in the book of Ephesians? And the book of Ephesians was Paul's letter to a group of churches in a particular area speaking very much about this issue about what it is to be counted and included in God's family, what it is to be saved. Did they need to adopt things like circumcision to be called Christians? And in his second chapter of his letter to the Ephesians, we read this, didn't we? Remember that formerly, you who were Gentiles by birth, called uncircumcised by those who call themselves circumcision. Remember at that time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizens in, uh, in Israel and foreigners, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God in the world. There was us over here, getting to know God through the law, God having revealed himself in a special way to the Jewish people, and you over there, far away, separated from God and from us, says Paul. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. It goes on to speak about how they have the same access, that they come to God in the same way, that they are seated at the same table of the Father, not through any external things that they do, but entirely through faith in Jesus. And that to the glory of God, that in the wisdom of God. So when there are diverse people coming together, when there are folks from different backgrounds, yes, it's messy, but we can see it as well as a beautiful thing, a painful thing sometimes, difficult to navigate, but beautiful all the same. And that's exactly what's happened here in chapter 15. 
when folks have gone and traveled and seen this new expanding church, its borders growing, its um, uh, diversity expanding, its color palette broadening, it caused questions. Chief amongst those questions was whether or not these new believers needed basically to become Jewish in order to become Christian. You can't be saved even following Jesus, unless you are Jewish, because God has made his promises through the Jewish people to Abraham and to his descendants. So if you want to be a part of that, then you need to gather up the laws of Moses, follow them with us to the T, and then have faith in Jesus. Then you can be saved. That's a question or a conundrum that has cropped up here in chapter 15, and it continue to crop up. Even after this meeting, after this decision was made, there were some people who continued to really struggle with it. It turns out that that's one of the main topics of virtually all of Paul's letters. Sorting out various churches thinking on this matter. What is it that can bring us to faith? What is it that can bring us to salvation? Now my guess is, for the majority of those listening online, for the majority of those who will be gathered in church in Clandabir on Sunday morning, that actually the question of whether or not we should be circumcised or not to be believers, to be saved, seems like a daft one. Of course not. You don't need to have any of that stuff in order to be saved. You just have to have faith in Jesus. And yet, in similar ways, as we're on mission, as things get messy, we do encounter similar sorts of problems. What sort of clothes should people wear? What's, what's appropriate attire for believers, perhaps? That has been an issue in the church in very recent decades. What sort of language should believers use? And I mean that in the sense of coarse language or, or abstaining from coarse language. But I also mean just in terms of the commonness of how we speak. Um, what sort of pastimes is it appropriate for a Christian to be involved in? Can someone really be a Christian if they go to the movies? Can someone really be a Christian if they uh, go out dancing? Can someone really be a Christian if they support Manchester United, whose emblem is a devil, whose nickname are the Red Devils? Can they really be Christians? Are you really a Christian if you only come to church on a Sunday morning? Or to be a Christian, do you really have to come to prayer meetings in the week? And Bible studies on top of that? And seek out a service on a Sunday evening? And so on and so forth, and so it multiplies. And you see in those examples, actually, something which we probably don't see very clearly in this example in Acts 15, that an awful lot of the questions come not so much from the law, but from our culture, from the things that we have adopted that give us a sense of identity beyond Christ. Not above Christ, our central identity comes from him, of course, but beyond Christ. Because there are other things which mark us out and define us, and they're very often good things, they're all, or at least not bad things. So, what do we do? What do we do when we find mess? What do we do when we encounter difficulties? 
what do we do when people, I don't think seeking to cause problems, there's no sense of that in this passage, I don't think yet, but who raise the question, and it's an honest question, and it's a difficult question. Like, can we come together with these people unless they look like us in this particular way? Well, I love how they deal with it in this passage. They do three things, or four things really. Firstly, they come together. They don't let these issues become divisive, first of all. The church in Antioch, having been asked the question, having wondered whether these guys who have come down from Jerusalem are speaking the truth, they seek to find an answer. They don't just butt heads straight away. They want to go, they want to grapple, they don't want to ignore it, and they don't want to make it the main thing of all, but they want to find a solution. I think we do well to have that same sort of attitude, wouldn't we? To want to find solutions when problems, when difficulties, when hostilities arise. Too often, our first response is either just speak to the hand because the face ain't listening, or to try and sweep things under the rug like they don't really matter. But no, neither of those things are particularly Christian ways of handling it. Christians confront things, but Christians seek reconciliation. They seek unity even amongst the diversity. So it's not putting the hand up, we're never going to speak about this. And it's not pretending that it doesn't matter and we'll carry on as normal. But it's wanting to find truth. It's wanting to find a way forward that deals with the issues that present themselves. <clears throat> they, first of all, want to deal with it. And the church in Antioch, sending Paul and Barnabas down to Jerusalem, want to deal with it together. This isn't just something for the Gentile church in Antioch to understand. This isn't just something for the Jerusalem church full of Jews to understand. This is something for them to grapple with together and to come to an understanding together. I love the fact that as Paul and Barnabas are wending their way down to Jerusalem and as they go through Samaria, an area, if you remember back in Acts, there was a similar controversy about. These folks had believed, but are they really Christians? Is it true that salvation is available even to them, even to these distant cousins to the Jewish people? I love that when they hear the reports of the Gentiles coming to faith, they celebrate. They celebrate the grace of God expanding further and further. They celebrate the witness of Jesus going from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and now even to the ends of the earth. They get it. They get it because they've struggled to cross that threshold themselves. Paul, Barnabas, they head down the the believers who were previously, and still it would appear, still Pharisees, they speak their version of events. Of course, to be a true believer, you have to be circumcised. And more than that, you have to obey all the law of Moses. Remember, this is, this is their life. This is before Jesus where they put their hope, where they labored so hard, if we can be pure enough. If we can be stringent enough and faithful enough to the law, then God will come, then God will rescue us. You can semi-understand, perhaps in their minds, having done such a good job that Jesus was the answer to their good works. 
that that is why God had sent the Messiah at this time, because they had purified themselves. They didn't want to abandon that. They didn't really need to abandon it in many senses, because after all, the law was very much about access to God, but also identifying themselves as a nation. Many Jews today, believers in Jesus, still, still to their um, best abilities, follow these laws, not in order to prove themselves to God, not in order to be accepted and welcomed and made right before God, but because that's who they are. Like any decent Welshman will wear a leek in a couple of weeks, or any decent Welshman will stand and sing the national anthem, even when the boys are going out to the Millennium Stadium to get a thumping. They're just things that we do because that's part of us and our identity beyond Christ. Anyway, they stand up, they give their version of events and they have this discussion where a few things weigh in. Three things, actually. This is the three things. They're happy to share their experiences. Peter shares his experience and he reminds them of how they've already sort of settled this idea in their minds of how he went to Samaria, of how he went to Cornelius' family, and how he witnessed the Holy Spirit coming on them just as it had come on the Jews, on the uncircumcised just as it had come on the circumcised. That for him, that settled the matter, really. If God didn't show partiality in that respect, then what else was there to say? Barnabas and Paul Saul they share their experiences of having taken the good news about Jesus to the furthest corners that they could reach and of how God had worked miracles amongst them in those places in a similar fashion to how he worked miracles with Peter. They share their experiences. Then James stands up and he says, well, do you know what? As someone who knows the scriptures, as someone who knows the prophets, this isn't just something that comes from your experience. This is something we should have been expecting. Because in God's word, he's spoken about rebuilding the tent of David. You know, uh, from the glory days of Israel. Now they've been exiled and oppressed and the Romans have taken over to rebuilding the tent of David. And that that would even include all those Gentiles who would bear his name. So it's not just our experience, he says, it's the scriptures that testify to it. And maybe you noticed it. In the letter that they sent, they write this, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond. And then he gives a few instructions. As far as they're concerned, this isn't just from their experiences or from the scriptures. The decision they come to is a decision prompted and validated by God himself, by the spirit that is alive and at work, who brings wisdom on those who believe, who will lead us into all truth. And what is that decision? Well, that decision is basically this, that no, you don't have to be circumcised to have faith, to be saved. You don't have to obey the law of Moses to be saved. As Paul will go on to write numerous times to various churches, we are saved by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, not by our works, but for certain good works. I was reminded as I was contemplating that this week of the old hymn, Rock of Ages Cleft for Me, 
verse 3 says this, Nothing in my hands I bring, nothing that I have done, but simply to thy cross I cling. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Could my zeal nor respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All could never sin erase. Thou must save and save by grace. That's the decision that they came to. It's a decision that I hope that we all understand this morning. Perhaps there are some of you and you're still not quite sure about what faith in Jesus really is. You know, there's this strong temptation that we have as human beings to, to validate ourselves. We don't like being given things for free. We want to make some sort of contribution. And yet here is the good news about Jesus. That as far away as we have gone from God, he has come to us. When Peter stood up at Pentecost and folks asked him, what must we do to be saved? He said, well, you've got to repent. You've got to trust in Jesus. You've got to get baptized. But all of that really just a description of accepting the grace that is ours in Jesus. Do you need to do anything in addition to what Jesus has done to be saved? No. We simply receive the gift of grace. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. And it's a solid decision, isn't it? It's a decision that has lasted throughout the ages. And even when churches, even when believers have lost sight of it, Christ, by his spirit, has called us back to this one truth. That to know God, to be known by God, is not dependent on our goodness. How could it ever be? But it's dependent on his kindness towards us in Jesus. So they write as much to the believers in Antioch. It may not be particularly clear to us that that's exactly what they're saying, but that is what they are saying. That the question of whether or not they need to be circumcised and obey the law, they can draw a line under it now. You don't. You just need to have faith in Jesus. So they deliver that solid decision. But perhaps you think, well, hang on a second, Sam. No, actually, they say they don't want to burden them any, um, uh, we don't want to burden you beyond the following requirements. And then they list a couple of things that they say, actually, here are some rules, here are some laws that you need to stick to. What was going on there? Well, if I could put it in this category, the solid decision is, no, you don't have to do anything other than put your trust in Jesus to be saved. But then they offer some friendly advice. Then they, they offer a couple of sort of areas in which their lives might be changed. And again, they seem reasonably random or odd to us. Abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. Isn't this Sam choosing a couple of the laws and elevating them and saying, in these ways you need to be Jewish and then you can be saved? Well, again, there are cultural things going on here, aren't there? We know of the time that much of the, the practices of the nations around Israel 
involved worship in temples that involved these very things of partaking in feasts of food that had been sacrificed to idols that had been killed not in the kosher ways but in ways that were specifically prescribed in order to to placate and to please the the myriad of gods that were worshipped in these temples there were various sexual ceremonies that went on as well and the letter is essentially saying this come out from where you were and trust only in jesus sometimes that can actually be the answer to the questions that we might ask the questions that we might ask about various things of can someone be a christian or not if they do x y and z there's the solid answer there's the solid decision that to be a believer to be a member of god's household to have access to the father all we need is faith in the son we come by his blood and nothing else and yet we might offer some advice we might offer some advice that from our experience certain behaviors certain um, places will compromise us will call us away from jesus rather than drawing us in other believers being free to do certain things might affect our weaker conscience that's how paul puts it in the letters to first corinthians that there are weaker brothers who can't handle the thought of meat sacrificed to idols and so for unity's sake or as a piece of good advice this is how they finish the letter you will do well to avoid these things we can encourage one another in a certain direction you know james the one who said stood up and said yeah this is fully in agreement with what the scriptures say didn't he write a letter that that uh, covered actually how the faith that we have works itself out that is not a question of coming to god on the basis on the merit of what we've done but if we come to god if we are part of god's household our lives will be changed and that's exactly what they describe here of lives that are transformed lives that are changed that if you come to jesus you won't carry on living the way that you were before perhaps as well he needed to take those pharisees to one side and remind them of that thing as well that they needed to change their attitudes they needed to change their behaviors simply because they had found salvation redemption reconciliation renewal in jesus christ alone so there's this mess which they deal with they confront head on they want to deal with it together they load in their experiences they they search the scriptures they allow the holy spirit to lead them they share this solid decision amongst this friendly advice and what is the result verse 30 the men were sent off and they went to antioch and they gathered the church and they delivered the letter and the people read it and they were glad for its encouraging message i love that some of us would read this and we'd say oh well you know isn't it a bummer isn't it a bummer that they're able to say no you don't have to be circumcised but there is x y and z that you still have to abstain from and we think that it's a constraining letter but that's not how these believers these gentile believers in antioch took it and they took it as confirmation 
of, of the power, the extent, the scope of the blood of Jesus to bring these two Jews and Gentiles together as one new man in Christ. They were encouraged. They rejoiced. They wanted Judas and Silas to stay with them, encouraging them even more. And what's funny about that all really is this, that they are drawn closer because of the mess. What could have been this schism, what could have been this split, when it was handled in Christ the right way, brings them closer together. Previously, they'd not really had anything to do with each other. There was this Jewish church, there was this Gentile church, and they were just cracking on in their own spheres. But now, because of the difficulty that they had encountered, they were closer together. And I wonder if we've experienced that. I wonder whether we could experience that. In areas and issues where we struggle to find unity, where we struggle to find uh, clarity, when there's mess because we're on mission, whether if we address it in the right way, if we come humbly, before God, seeking him in it, whether it will draw us closer together. I think that's why we would normally choose the talk to the hand, the face ain't listening, or just sweeping things under the rug. Because we're afraid, really, that this thing will blow up and drive us further apart. But in Christ, we are brought closer together. That is a wonderful thing. So, brothers and sisters, this is what I want you to do this morning, is to search yourself. To search yourself and to ask the question, are there any barriers that I am putting up that, it, that in my heart and in my mind at least are excluding others from the family of faith? What is it that would make it difficult for me to welcome someone with open arms, to tear the loaf, to pour out the cup and to share communion with someone else? And to honestly ask the question, is that enough? Is that thing enough to separate us in Christ? I think officially everything that we could bring to mind, the answer will be no. This is an opportunity for us to reflect, to contemplate, to meditate on the truth that we are brought in by this same way. We have one way, one access to the Father together by the blood of Christ to cherish that there is that one way, Jesus, the truth and the life for all people who would believe. And let's not be afraid that it would drive us further apart, but let's be glad that in Christ, all things are being drawn together. So what is that? What is that thing in you? What is that thing in us? Let's not be afraid to confront it because in Christ there is this power to tear down those walls of hostility and to sit together at the Father's table. Lord God, we thank you that people like us, with our blind spots, with our cultural necessities, that people like us can still be welcomed into your family. I pray that you would give us eyes to see as you see us, Lord not along the lines that we would draw of education or, or political persuasion or um, 
socio-economic background, whatever it is, preferred language, ethnic lines, Lord God, which have divided so much in recent history. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see one another as you see us, as broken people who have been made new in Jesus. Lord, it is a glorious thing. It is something which bears witness to you and your goodness and your grace and your love and your wisdom, even to the heavenly realms, when those who are far apart are brought together in Jesus. I pray that you would help us to see through those barriers and help us to see the blood of Christ shed for each and every believer and that you would be drawing us closer together, that more of what we studied when we looked at Ephesians would be true in us, the truth the two separate brought together, that in us your name would be lifted up higher and higher. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.